Chapter Four of the Upas Tree by Florence L. Barclay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Four: Firelight in the Studio. It was Ronnie's last evening in England. The parting, which had seemed so far away, must take place on the morrow. It took all Helen's bright courage to keep up Ronnie's spirits. After dinner, they sat together in a room they still called the studio although Helen had given up her painting soon after their marriage. It was a large, old-fashioned room, oak-panelled and spacious. A huge mirror, in a massive gilt frame, hung upon the wall opposite door and fireplace, reaching from the ceiling to the parquet floor. Ronald, who used the studio as a smoking-room, had introduced three or four deep wicker chairs, comfortably cushioned, and a couple of oriental tables. The fireplace lent itself grandly in winter to great log fires, when the crimson curtains were drawn in ample folds over the many windows, shutting out the dank bleakness of the park without, and imparting a look of coziness to the empty room. A dozen old family portraits, banished from more important places because their expressions annoyed Ronnie, were crowded into whatever space was available, and glowered down, from the bad light to which they had been relegated on the very modern young man whose uncomplimentary remarks had effected their banishment, and who sprawled luxuriously in the firelight, monarch of all he surveyed, in the domain which for centuries had been their own. The only other thing in the room was a piano, on which Ronnie very effectively, and very inaccurately, strummed by ear, and on which Helen, with careful skill, played his accompaniments, when he was seized with a sudden desire to sing. Ronald's music was always a perplexity to Helen. There was a quality about it so extraordinarily, so unusually beautiful, combined with an entire lack of method or of training, and a quite startling ignorance of the most rudimentary rules. On one occasion, during a sharp attack of influenza, when he had insisted upon being down and about with a temperature of 104, he suddenly rose from the depths of a chair in which he had been lying, talking wild and feverish nonsense, stumbled over to the piano, dropped heavily upon the stool, then proceeded to play and sing, in a way, which brought tears to his wife's eyes, while her heart stood still with anxiety and wonder. Yet, when she mentioned it a few days later, he appeared to have forgotten all about it, turning the subject with almost petulant abruptness. But on this, their last evening together, the piano stood unheeded. They seemed only to want two chairs and each other. She could hardly take her eyes from his face, remembering how many months must pass before she could see him again. Yet it was Ronnie who made moan, and Helen who bravely comforted, turning as often as possible to earnest discussion of his plot and its possibilities. But after a while even she went under, to the thought of the nearness of the parting. Though it was late April, the evenings were chilly, a fire glowed in the grate. Presently Ronnie rose, turned off the electric light and seated himself on the rug in the firelight, resting his head against his wife's knees. Silently she passed her fingers through his hair. Something in the quality of her silence turned Ronald's thoughts from himself to her alone. Helen, he said, I hate to be leaving you. Shall you be very lonely? She could not answer. You are sure your good old Mademoiselle Victorine is coming to be with you? Yes, dear. She holds herself in readiness to come as soon as I feel able to send for her. She and I lived alone together here during eighteen months, after Papa's death, 
We were very quietly happy. I do not see why we should not be happy again. What shall you do all day? Well, I shall have my duties in the village and on the estate, and, for our recreation, we shall read French and German, and do plenty of music. Mademoiselle Victorine delights in playing what she calls De Quatre Main, which consists in our both practicing vigorously upon the same piano, she steadily punishing the bass, while I fly after her on the more lively treble. It is good practice, it has its fascinations, and will take the place of riding for me. Shan't you ride, Helen? No, Ronnie, not without you. Will you and Mademoiselle Victorine drive your foreign hands in here? No, not in here, my darling. I don't think I shall be able to bear to touch the piano on which you play to me. I don't play, said Ronnie. I strum. True, dear, you often strum, but sometimes you play quite wonderfully. I wish you had been properly taught. I always hated being taught anything, said Ronald. I like doing things without learning to do them, and I know what you mean about the times when I really play, but, excepting when the mood is on me, I don't care to think of those times. I never feel really myself when it happens. I seem to be listening to somebody else playing, and trying to remember something I have hopelessly forgotten. It gives me a strained, uncanny feeling, Helen. Does it, darling? Then let us talk of something else. Oh, Ronnie, you must promise me to take care of your health out in that climate. I believe you are going at the very worst time of year. I have to know it at its worst and at its hottest, he said. But I shall be all right. I am strong as a horse, and sound in wind and limb. I hope you will get good food. He laughed. I expect to live on just whatever I can shoot or grub up. You see, the more completely I leave all civilization, the more correctly I shall get my copy. I can't crawl into the long grass carrying tins of sardines and bottles of bass. You might take meat lozenges, suggested Ronnie's wife. Meat lozenges, darling, are concentrated nastiness. I felt like an unhealthy bullock the whole of the rest of the day when, to please you, I sucked one while we were mountain climbing. I propose living on interesting and unique fruits and roots, all the things which correspond to locusts and wild honey. But, Helen, I am afraid there will be quite a long time during which I shall not be able either to send or to receive letters. We shall have to console ourselves with the trite old saying, No news is good news. Of course, so far as I am concerned, it would be useless to hear of any cause of anxiety or worry when I could not possibly get back or deal with it. You shall not hear of any worries or have any anxieties, darling. If difficulties arise, I will deal with them. You must keep a perfectly free mind all the time. For my part, I will try not to give way to panics about you, if you will promise to cable occasionally, and to write as often as you can. You won't go and get ill, will you, Helen? She smiled, laying her cheek on the top of his head as she bent over him. I never get ill, darling. Like you, I am sound in wind and limb. We are a most healthy couple. We shall both be thirty, Helen, before we meet again. You will attain to that advanced age a month before I shall. On your birthday I shall drink your health in some weird concoction of juices, and I shall say to all the lions and tigers, hippopotamuses, cockatrices and asps, sitting round my campfire, you will hardly believe it, my heathen hearers, out of this well-ordered jungle, where the female is kept in her proper place, but my wife has the cheek to march up to-day into the next decade, leaving me behind in the youthful twenties. Oh, Helen, I wish we had a little kitty playing around. I am tired of being the youngest in the family. 
She clasped both hands about his throat. He might have heard the beating of her heart had he been listening. Ronald, that is a joy which may yet be ours, some day. But my writer of romances, who is such a stickler for grammatical accuracy, is surely the younger of a family of two. Oh, grammar be relegated to the library, cried Ronnie, laughing. And you really presume too much on that one short month, Helen. You often treat me as if I were an infant. The smile in her eyes held the mother look, in its yearning tenderness. Ronnie, dear, you are so very much younger than I am, in many ways, and you always will be. Unlike the infant of days, if you live to be a hundred years old, you will still die young, a child in heart, full of youth's joyous joy in living. You must not mind if your wife occasionally treats you as though you were a dear big baby, requiring maternal care and petting. You are such a veritable boy sometimes, and it soothes the yearning for a little son of yours to cuddle in her arms when she plays that her big boy is something of a baby. Ronald took her left hand from about his neck and kissed it tenderly. This was his only answer, but his silence meant more to Helen than speech. Words flowed so readily to express his surface thoughts, but when words suddenly and unexpectedly failed, a deeper depth had been reached, and in that silence his wife found comfort and content. Ronnie was not all ripples. There was more beneath than the shifting shallows. Deep, still pools were there, and rocks on which might eventually be built a beacon-light for the souls of men. But, as yet, it took Helen's clear and faithful eyes to discern the pools, to perceive the possible strong foundations. "'Do you remember,' he said presently, "'the Dalmains coming over last January with their little Jeff? "'When I saw that jolly little chap trotting around, "'and looking up at his mother with big shining eyes, "'full of trustful love and innocent courage, "'absolutely unafraid, "'notwithstanding her rather peremptory manner "'and apparently stern discipline,' I felt that it must be the making of two people to have such a little son as that, depending upon them to show him how to grow up right. One would simply be obliged to live up to his baby belief in one, wouldn't one, Helen? Yes, darling, we, we should. I hope you will see a lot of the Dalmains when I am away. Try to put in a good long visit there, and she would come over if you wanted her, wouldn't she? Yes, she will come if I want her. "'You and she are great friends,' pursued Ronnie. "'Aren't you? "'I find her alarming. "'When she looks at me, I feel such a worm. "'I want to slide into a hole and hide. "'But there is never a hole to be found. "'I have to remain erect, "'handing tea and bread and butter, "'while I mentally grovel. "'I almost pray that a hungry blackbird "'or a prying thrush "'may chance to come my way "'and consider me juicy and appetizing. "'You remember, "'the vicar and Mrs. Vicar came to tea that day.' She wore brown spots, but even the priestly blackbird and the Levitical thrush passed me by on the other side. Oh, Ronnie, how silly! I know Jane admires your books, darling. She considers me quite unfit to tie your shoestrings. Ronnie, be quiet. You would not be afraid of her had you ever known what it was to turn to her in trouble or difficulty. She helped me through an awfully hard time six months before I met you. She showed me the right thing to do, and then stood by me while I did it. There is nobody in the whole world like her. Well, send for her if you get into any troubles while I am away. I shall feel quite brave about her being here when I am safely hidden in the long grass. 
Is there any possible chance that you will get back sooner than you think, Ronnie? Hardly. Not before November, anyway. And yesterday my publishers were keen that I should put in a night at Leipzig on my way home, and a night at The Hague, show whatever copy I have to firms there, and make arrangements for German and Dutch translations to appear as soon as possible after the English edition is out. I think I may as well do this, and return by the Hook of Holland. I enjoy the night crossing, and like reaching London early in the morning. By the way, haven't you a cousin of some sort living at Leipzig? Yes, my first cousin, Aubrey Treherne. He is studying music and working on compositions of his own, I believe. He lives in a flat in the Grassistrasse. All right. Put his address in my pocket-book. I will look him up. My special chum, Dick Cameron, is to be out there in November, investigating one of their queer water-cures. I wish you knew Dick Cameron, Helen. I shall hope to see him, too. Has your cousin a spare room in his flat? I don't know, Ronnie. Aubrey Treherne is not a good man. He is not a man you should trust. Darling, you don't necessarily trust a fellow because he puts you up for the night. But I dare say Dick will find me a room. Aubrey is not a good man, repeated Helen firmly. Dear, we are none of us good. You are, Ronnie, in the sense I mean, or I should not have married you. Oh, then, yes, please, said Ronnie. I am very, very good. He laughed up at her but Helen's face was grave. Then a sudden thought brightened it. If you really go to Leipzig, Ronnie, could you look in at Zimmermann's, a first-rate place for musical instruments of all kinds, and choose me a small organ for the new church? I saw a little beauty the other day at Huntingford, a perfect tone, twelve stops, and quite easy to play. They had had it sent over from Leipzig. It cost only twenty-four pounds. In England one could hardly have bought so good an instrument for less than forty. If you could choose one with a really sweet tone, and have it shipped over here, I should be grateful. With pleasure, darling. I enjoy trying all sorts of instruments. But why economize over the organ? If my wife fancied a hundred-guinea organ, I could give it her. No, you couldn't, Ronnie. You must not be extravagant. I'm not extravagant, dear. Buying things one can afford is not extravagance. Sometimes it is. Extravagance is not spending money, but it is paying a higher price for a thing than the actual need demands, or than the circumstances justify. I considered you extravagant last winter when you paid five guineas for a box at Olympia, intended to hold eight people, and sat in it, in solitary grandeur, alone with your wife. I know you did, said Ronnie. You left me no possible loophole for doubt in the matter. But your quite mistaken view, on that occasion, arose from an incorrect estimate of values. I paid one pound six shilling and three pence for the two seats, and three pounds eighteen and nine pence for the pleasure of sitting alone with my wife, and thought it cheap at that. It was a far lower price than the actual need demanded. Therefore, by your own showing, it was not extravagant. Oh, what a boy it is, sighed Helen, with a little gesture of despair. Then, last Christmas, Ronnie, you insisted upon fetaying the old people with all kinds of unnecessary luxuries. They had always been quite content with the wholesome bread-and-butter, plum-cake, and nice hot tea. They did not require pâté de foie gras and champagne, nor did they understand or really enjoy them. One old lady, in considerable distress, confided to me the fact that the champagne tasted to her like physic with a fizzle in it. It made most of them ill, Ronnie, and cost at least eight times as much as my simple Christmas parties of other years. 
so don't go and spend an unnecessary sum on an elaborate and possibly useless instrument. I will write you full particulars when the time comes. Oh, Ronnie, you will be so nearly home by then. How shall I wait? I shall love to feel I have something to do for you in Leipzig, said Ronnie, and I enjoy poking about among crowds of queer instruments. I should like to have played in Nebuchadnezzar's band. I should have played the sackbut, because I haven't the faintest notion of how you work the thing, whether you blow into it, or pull it in and out, or tread upon it, nor what matter of surprising sound it emits, when you do any or all of these things. I love springing surprises on myself and on other people, and I know I do best the things which, if I considered the matter beforehand, I shouldn't have the veriest ghost of a notion how to set about doing. That, darling, is inspiration. I should have played the sackbut by inspiration, whereupon Nebuchadnezzar would instantly have had me cast into the burning fiery furnace. Oh, Ronnie, I wish I could laugh, but tomorrow is so near. What shall I do when there is nobody here to tell me silly stories? Ask Mademoiselle Victorine to try her hand at it. Say, Chère Mademoiselle, s'il vous plaît, Racontez-moi une extrêmement sorte history. Ronnie, do stop chafing. Go and play me something really beautiful and sing very softly, as you did the other night, so that I can hear the tones of the piano and your voice vibrating together. No, said Ronnie, I can't. I have a cast-iron lump in my throat just now, and not a note could pass it. Besides, I don't really play the piano. He stretched out his foot and kicked a log into the fire. The flame shot up, illumining the room. The log fire and the two seated near it were reflected fitfully in the distant mirror. Helen, there is one instrument above all others, which I have always longed to play, yet I have never even held one in my hand. What instrument is that, darling? The violoncello, said Ronnie, sitting up and turning towards her as he spoke. When I think of a cello, I seem as if I know exactly how it would feel to hold between my knees, press my fingers up and down the yielding strings, and draw the bow across them. Helen, if I had a cello here to-night, you would listen to sounds of such exquisite throbbing beauty that you would forget everything in this world, my wife, excepting that I love you. His eyes shone in the firelight. An older look of deeper strength and a fuller manly vigor came into his face. The glow of love transfigured it. With an uncontrollable sob, Helen stooped and laid her lips on his. The clock struck midnight. Oh, Ronnie, she said. Oh, Ronnie, it is today, now, no longer tomorrow, but today. He sprang to his feet, took her hand, and drew her to the door. Come, Helen, he said. End of chapter 4